I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello, welcome to episode 90 of the Andy J Podcast. We're putting this out over the festive period, so if you're listening to this in real time, no idea how your Christmas is going, no idea how you're building up to the new year, but I hope you're doing all right. Now, as you'll have seen from the blurb, this is our mental health special episode, and we did this last year in Christmas of 2020, where we included several of the conversations that we'd had during the year from big names about their challenges with mental health and we put it out because we recognise that over the festive period it is a time where people are known to be struggling more than at other times. I realise obviously with the pandemic and everything that we've had to deal with in the UK and worldwide sort of thrown out the rule book in terms of standard timelines but nonetheless traditionally people find things sometimes extra hard over the festive period, whether you are seeing loved ones or missing out on seeing loved ones, whether you are staying in your spare bedroom or in with the parents or the in-laws or whatever it might be and it's just driving you a little bit nuts, people have found that at this kind of time of year it can be extra challenging. So for that reason, we have brought you seven big extracts of conversations from big stars where they address the challenges that they have faced And we're talking about proper big style challenges. There are references to suicide and many others going on in these chats. And some of it is a difficult listen. But we're including them because we want you to feel that if you're struggling, you are not alone. We want you to feel that what you're feeling, although unique to you, is something that other people have been through, other people have faced And crucially, other people have survived. Now, what we tried to do, because mental health has been such a hot topic for so many of the conversations from this podcast this year. So many people have brought it up. So we've tried to bring, of course, big names because it's often easy to connect with famous people and so on. But we've tried to bring conversations where the themes are different. People have shared different issues, different challenges from, I've obviously mentioned the suicide word, which is the case with two or three of our guests today, to things like body dysmorphia, to abuse in childhood and so on, and PTSD, etc. There's lots of different variants of challenges, of struggles. And of course, they all contain the very personal anecdotes about how these people have been going through these challenges and then how they have got out of them, how they cope the things they do to just keep going. So I sincerely hope that if you need some comfort, if you need some advice, if you need some guidance, some of these conversations will provide some comfort and some help. We have to stress that none of the people on this episode, and especially myself, are experts in this field, not by a long stretch. If you are struggling, please reach out. I would advise the Samaritans would be your first port of call. They're open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can call them, 
on 116123 in the UK. That's 116123, and there will always be someone to talk to. There will always be someone on the end of the phone. If you'd like the website address, you can go to samaritans.org. Samaritans.org. And that number again is 116123. If you are struggling on any level, no matter how big or small, do not dismiss how you're feeling. Do not say, oh, well, it's, it's nothing compared to what these guys are going through because it's unique to you and therefore it's it's a big deal. So talk to someone. Pick up the phone if you haven't got a support network or people you trust with your inner workings, with what your head is telling you. Then talk to a stranger who knows what they're doing, who can help. 116-123. Now, the people you're going to hear from today, we have amassed an incredible range of people and the conversations are far-ranging and, and remarkable. Frankie Bridge... Robert Webb, Professor Green, Jason Fox, Terry White, James Arthur, and Matt Haig. I'll do a little intro before each one, just to keep checking back with you, but I just wanted you to know that's a lovely overview. These are shortish conversations, around about 15 minutes in some cases. I think the shortest one is about eight or nine minutes, but I just wanted you to hear their stories. And for example, this first one with Frankie Bridge, she will be talking about Tears of a Clown. A big fame. I mean, of course, we've just seen her in, in I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and doing really, really well. And you'd never think there's somebody struggling behind the curtain. But she is and she has been and it's an ongoing thing. But she's found ways of coping. So that's how we're going to start with Frankie Bridge. The Andy J Podcast. Were you told by some management or whatever... Put on a smile. The show must go on. You have to do this. Don't care how you're feeling. The public don't. Just be smiley. Not so much. It's more, you know, you're aware that you have, when you're in a band, you know, I had I had four other girls that were relying on, we all relied on each other, you know, to turn up and pull everything out of the bag every day. Um, so you have the pressure of that. And then you do have the pressure of fans and stuff. You don't want to let them down. And obviously management and record label relying on you to do your job. It's a job at the end of the day. Everyone really looked after us. No one was like, I don't care how you feel. You've got to go out there. But obviously it was like, we haven't really got time for you to have a day off. Just off you go, you know, type thing. Um, but not in like a, a mean way. It's just the, the way it is. Your life is scheduled from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And you just have to kind of get on with it. So you're in this kind of mad, super busy pressure cooker under the spotlight the whole time yeah and is that you know triggers a difficult word because it's it means so many different things to many different mm. people now but i mean if is it okay if i quote from open your your first book, yeah of course you know you talk about the panic attacks and you yeah. say you know your words the sensation would make me feel so unbelievably helpless as though i had absolutely yeah. no control over my mind or body mm-hmm. at, at what point did these start frankie and, and when did you realize this wasn't right. This wasn't. This wasn't what should be going um, on. I'd say it was a good few years into the band, um, and I think it, it came from which from writing open. I realised that a lot of my anxiety comes from control and feeling out of control, um, and I think that comes from the life that I've led. You know, from Escob Juniors to the Saturdays, everyone's told me from day to day this is what you're doing today. This is what time you're starting and ending. This is when you'll eat lunch. This is, do you know what I mean? So I suppose I had no control over my life in that way. So I think anxiety and um, controlling my eating was the only way that I felt that I could take back some of that control. 
And I do think that that's where a lot of my anxiety came from, just because you feel out of control because everyone's just telling you what to do and who to be that day, if that makes sense. Yes, that must be very strange. And 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 you kept these, I mean, they at first, it, panic attack is the label, isn't it? At first they were mm. panic attacks. And mm. you kept these completely to yourself or did you share with anyone? No, no one really knew about them for a while. Um, it wasn't really until I met Wayne where I couldn't really hide them from him. I'd come home and I was just like a crying panic attack mess because it was almost like while I was at work, I could hold it together. But the minute I stepped through the door, I couldn't anymore because I was comfortable, I suppose. And I didn't have to be Frankie from the Saturdays. And um, I still remember um, backstage doing a meet and greet before a show. And before, and it was the first time I'd realized that I had started doing it. Before I stepped into the room, I had to switch from Frankie into Frankie from the Saturdays. And that was the first time I realized that I'd had to become like two people because I wasn't just one person anymore because my normal Frankie was having panic attacks, feeling depressed and really struggling. But I had to be happy, Frankie from the Saturdays. Lovely to meet you. Isn't life great kind of thing? Mm. Yeah. So the first few years in the band, the smiles were real and then, yeah. and then they weren't. Yeah. Gosh, that must have been very, very confusing. Yeah, I think I think at the time I just kind of I didn't really realise what was happening. Um and then I went to a doctor and he said to me and I was just I just sat down in front of him and just burst into tears and I just thought I was just really tired. And he said, I really think you need to go and see a therapist. I think there's more to this. I think you're suffering with depression and anxiety and I think you need to go and talk to someone. And I was horrified and offended. I was like no, only crazy people go and see therapists. Like, I'm not crazy. I'm fine. I'm just really tired. And it was a good year or so before I actually gave into that and thought, no, you know what? I can't carry on like this. I do need to do something about it. Gosh. So even after the professional had spoken, you were like, nah, no, 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 no. It's just, I'm just worn out. Yeah. Because I think it just wasn't something, you know, it's something that's spoken about so much more now. But then it really wasn't, and it was very much like just keep keep calm, carry on type thing. It's just ingrained in us, you know. Yeah. So you were, I mean, you were basically in a constant battle with yourself. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of I could, I could, like I said, I could turn it on for work, and then the minute I left work, I just couldn't. I'd get home, I'd just want to get straight in bed. I was just crying all the time. I, you know, I wouldn't eat when I got home. I was just too exhausted and. Just even in the mornings, I'd get up, I'd be crying because I didn't want to go into work, but then I'd turn up and do what I had to do. Yes, you were still delivering. That's mm. so you, were, you were sort of functioning. Yeah, which is why mental health is such a hard thing for people who haven't experienced it to understand. And because you can, it's weird, you can hide it so well. And I think that's why so many people go on for so long without going to see a doctor or anything, because you're like, well, I can still function and do all the things I have to do. But at some point, it gets to a point where you can't anymore. Yes. Gosh, it's I mean, it's it's a crazy one to kind of hear you say it as well, because I, I sort of prior to doing this deep dive into your, your life and times, Frankie, mm. I, I saw you as the sort of sweetness and light, happy poster child for, you know, for pop stardom and, and you know, a happy 
happy kind of character. Um, yeah. And it's it's easy to sort of mistake it as tears of a clown, isn't it? It's, it's sort of the thing you don't really see. Can I ask yeah. you about, about again, and I'm, I'm sort of mixing between your two books at the moment. I hope you don't mind. Because I'm sort no. of interweaving a bit and, and kind of yeah. trying, to, trying to get you to fill in the blanks, as it were. Um, but, you know, it's, this is a, 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 a sort of tough one to talk about. But the suicidal mm-hmm. thoughts, which you... You, you go into quite a lot of detail, particularly in open about suicidal thoughts, and you mm-hmm. you explain. I think very. I think it's very generous of you to write about your own suicidal thoughts in a way that frames it for people who might have had loved ones that have taken their own lives, and explain mm. how and why that's the sort of surroundings behind that. Are you happy to discuss yep. your own challenges with them, and 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 is it still something that that crops up from time to time? Um. Yeah. I mean. Not so much. I have thoughts of, you know, with being a parent now, I often feel that if I'm having a down day, I can I can have those thoughts of they'd all be better off without me. I still have those moments, but they're not as deep rooted as they once were. Um, because but, but, you always. But what, but what starts that, Frankie? I mean, is it is it because I mean, can it be something as simple as I've made this mistake incidentally? You get the wrong peanut butter in the sandwich. For, for your son you know. um, yeah it can be anything but you know what with with depression it, there just doesn't have to be a reason and it can be so frustrating because I can I can take my medication I can do therapy I can make sure that I exercise to you know keep the endorphins going I can do all the things I know I'm supposed to do to keep myself up and on, in a good place but some days it just takes over and there's not really anything you can do about it and it, it purely is just the depression talking um but at that moment you can't see that you know you can only see your failures so yeah like you've forgotten to buy this thing or i haven't been around enough for the boys or i've not been as fun and happy or i haven't done my job well that day it can be these, these small life daily things um that all just catch up with you one day and if i was of sound mind that day it wouldn't bother me but on a day where my depression has taken hold it's it yeah you fully go into that dark space again but I know because I'm so far much further down the line that the light will come at the end of the tunnel whereas before I'd never believed that because I had no proof of that. Do you hold yourself to a a ridiculously high standard then Frankie is it have you set yourself an impossible yeah. bar? Yeah, I'm I'm a perfectionist. Um, I always have been. Um, and, you know, that can be a good thing. You could say that that's maybe how I've got to where I am all these years. But then also it does mean that you're never really happy with what you have done and can appreciate how well you have done. Um, and you're always striving for more, um, which is tiring and, and an impossible task. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that that doesn't help at all. Um, of putting these standards on yourself that are hard to meet, I suppose. Do you know, this is so interesting, Frankie, because, you know, you'd look at your achievements just on a piece of paper, a CV, mm-hmm. as it were, and you'd look at the things you've achieved, you've done, and the journeys you've been on, and the people you've met, and the things you've, you know, current life as well, your family, your your new career, Loose Women, and so on. All of these different things, Strictly Come Dancing, Success, etc. And you just sort of think, well, that must be one really happy person. She's done it all. She's achieved everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just clearly not the case. 
No, and I think that's why all those years ago I decided to speak out about it because if someone who on paper appears to have this perfect life and um, has achieved all these things can manage to have depression, then, you know, so can anyone. We have this idea that someone who's successful or who has a family or who does well can't feel unhappy, but it's, it's an illness at the end of the day. And it can happen to anyone. And that's why I've always wanted to talk about it and be so honest about it because I'm surprised, you know, I'm like, why am I this way? And it fills me with so much guilt that I have achieved all the things I wanted to achieve, yet I can still feel this fundamental deep unhappiness. And it's frustrating, but it's just an unfortunate illness to have. <laughs> yes, yes. So so what happens in your in your head, Frankie, when I say to you, you're a, you know, you're a great looking woman. What, what does that, mm. I mean, do I just sound like an old perv? I probably do, to be fair. But, <laughs> but it, no. You know what I mean though? If, if, I, if I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to hit on you here, by the way. I'm just, yeah. I'm just trying to find out what the thought process is. If, if somebody, somebody you rate says to you, Hey, you're, you're really great. You're a really good looking woman. What does that do? do does that, does that go in and do you accept that? No. Or you're like, Oh no, I'm not. Yeah. No, it just doesn't even yeah, I'm just like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not. Oh, you haven't seen me like, you haven't seen me in a bikini or you haven't seen me without makeup on or, you know, like I can, you know, like most very British singers, we're not very good at taking compliments. Um, but yeah, I can't, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. I'm kind of like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, it's. But I, I think I think everyone is a little bit like that. I mean, we don't. Everyone all, is. We don't yeah, all look like everyone. you, to be fair, Frankie, but we are, you know, I mean. <laughs> I'm acutely aware, for example, that lockdown has given me an additional seven chins. And, and, and I can't shake that when someone says, oh, that's a nice photo and of you. And you're not I'm the like, only one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, lockdown. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all lockdown's fault. It's nothing to do with my delight in the fridge. Cheese. You know, this is, this is how it works. But that's, but that's my point is you don't, you don't, I mean, we've, we've talked about things online and how you, it wasn't mm. in, in S Club, for example, that wasn't a thing. But I imagine mm. if you were to ever, I don't know, find a, a chat forum about Frankie or whatever, there would be a lot of very nice things being said about you. If you were to mm. read those, what, you just wouldn't believe them. You'd just be like, no, nah, no, 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 none of this. No, I mean, it's nice to hear. Like, it doesn't, it's not like I go, oh, I'm like, oh, that's nice. But it, it doesn't mean that I believe them. And I think there's yeah, so many people like that you know especially not not dismissing men but especially women we're so hard on ourselves in the way that we look um and we do all do that thing and I'm sure you do as well someone says like oh I like your jeans oh well they were only five pounds from uh, <laughs> yeah I've, you know, had, and, I've had them for ages yeah yeah do you know what I mean we just can't take it and it's a really weird thing and I, it's almost like if you did, it means you believe it. And we don't want people to think that we believe it. It's really silly. Um, and, you know, I'm the first to go and compliment someone. Like, I love to go and tell them, even if I don't know them. And I think it's almost easier to take a compliment from a complete stranger than, than someone you know. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't look in the mirror and see what other people see. And I think that's a big thing with body dysmorphia is, that, that you just don't, you know, like I look back at pictures sometimes and I remember how I felt in that moment. And I think, God, it's so sad. I felt sad. I felt ugly. I felt embarrassed to be in this outfit or whatever. And I think, God, I'd love to look like that now. You know, and we <laughs> all do that. Yeah. We all do that. The Andy J Podcast.
Well, that was Frankie Bridge, and we'll move quickly on now to a remarkable man who, of course, has been a, a, a well-known face on our screens for many years from Peep Show and various others. This is Robert Webb. We will have seen him earlier this year doing Strictly Come Dancing and having to drop out um, for health issues, and I hope he's okay. Um, he's had some real challenges with his heart, and I think it was just one of those things that it was too much too soon for him to be taking on. Anyway, Robert is going to be reflecting on his own mental health following childhood conditioning and the struggle with masculinity. He lost his mother at a year early age and he utilised therapy and conscious thinking to accept and release emotion. Let's hear from him. The Andy J Podcast. Yes, that, that took me by surprise when you said that you, you, you had done that in the book. I mean, it, it sort of... It was firstly, it was lovely that actually there was the room for you to have that new relationship with your dad, with the one where you weren't scared of him and where you could say things. And and obviously this furthers this furthers across your career. And there was all sorts of love that happened and all sorts of bridges that were built and so on further down the line. But yeah, when you said, you know, at age 17, you moved back in with him, I was really I was surprised. I was like, crikey. OK, was not expecting that. No, I wasn't expecting that. Um, it was, it was. I mean, there are loads of different sort of factors at play. I mean, mum died halfway through my lower six, and so I stayed living with my stepdad, Derek, and my little sister, Annabeth, who was only about two at the time, um, uh, for the rest of my sixth form until I got the grades. That I, I didn't get the grades that I needed because I was hell-bent on going to Cambridge because of Cambridge Spotlights and because, you know, loads of people that I love watching on TV, like... Brian Laurie and uh, uh, John Keyes and Clive Anderson, Clive James and Emma Thompson, just everybody. And it seemed that I really liked had been through this uh, student comedy club. The only trouble with that was that you needed quite good A-levels and I uh, didn't get anywhere near what I needed. And so I knew that I had to retake. And the idea of living with Derek and Annabeth for another uh for even for another few weeks was just you know I just couldn't do it and also because you know that was the house that mum had lived in and this um, this turns up in in Come Again that when we first meet Kate that she she's lost Luke and I think this happens when you when you lose someone that you live with that place just becomes it's like their absence is this presence I mean they're just everywhere in the sort of the, the squeak of the sofa and the hum of the fridge and just everything reminds you of them and just everywhere you turn um, and I just didn't want to live in that house anymore. Um, and Dad was absolutely thrilled that I wanted to go and uh, live with him. And also, I think there was a, there was a pull as well towards your surviving uh, blood parents. I mean, I think that was a fairly natural thing. That you know, I just didn't know the guy at all. You know, he'd been uh, he hadn't been a presence in my. You know, I, he was there for birthdays and Christmases and the odd fireworks night, and that that was genuinely it. Uh, from five to seventeen, so uh, so I just wanted to know who this person was, apart from anything else. But it, it was it was a very it was a very emotional time and a quite a, a very difficult decision. But um, that's what I did anyway. Yes, yes, but of course, you know, grief does crazy things to us, doesn't it? You know, yeah, we don't know who we are when we're when we're hit with grief. Everything everything changes. It's um it's, and, and to go through it at 17 at, a, at such a crucial part in your life as well, because like you say, you had a singular focus, you know, which was get into Cambridge. You want to be part of Footlights. And, and yeah, well, that, in a way, in a way, I was kind of lucky that I had that as a kind of overriding, you know, plan. I was I was, I was very 
focused on that. But in a weird kind of way, just being just because I was focused on it didn't didn't mean that I was any any good at doing it. Because I mean, you know, I thought I was going to retake in in November, and I did absolutely nothing to to make that happen. And I ended up going back to school for a year. That I had what is euphemistically called a third year six when I was there. I was nineteen years old because uh, I was old for my year anyway, and I was putting on this school blazer and sitting in the class of the year below. And, you know, that take, that planes a few edges off you. I, I was sort of, um, you know, gagging on humble pie. Uh, so uh, so all that happened. But then, but yes, over, I did have this overarching thing, I, at least, if, and I did make it happen eventually. But um, uh, I had this thing to, to sort of keep me distracted. And, and I was young. I mean, it could have been, I mean, 17 is rough, but it could have been rougher. You know, I think it's harder if you're, if, I don't know. I had a friend who lost his dad when he was eight. I think that's that just seems incomparably worse to me. But anyway, there's always someone worse off. Um, but yeah, it, it felt rough because 17 was, I was just sort of getting to know mum as a kind of, we were just starting to have a, a sort of grown-up relationship that I could I could talk to her about stuff. And that was just at the very beginning of that. So that's when it, that that's why it felt particularly cruel. And as I say, dad wasn't a big figure in my life and neither was Derek really, my stepdad. And so she was sort of my favorite person. Uh, and um, so that's why it was, it was, it was tough. Um, but, you know, we get, we get better. And again, in, in Come Again, you know, the, the sort of trajectory of the book, if, if you like. I mean, bearing in mind, this is a piece of light comic fiction and it ends with a car chase and a punch up. And, you know, <laughs> it's got lots of sort of fun things going on. But if it's a, to the extent it's about anything, it's about that movement from grief to mourning. Grief is, you know, is not meaningful. We don't learn anything. It just hurts. But eventually you, you move into a, a sort of later phase of this process called, that we call mourning. And that's where you start to reintegrate the lost past with the new present. Yes. It's where you start to see that the present actually, actually has something to say for itself. And in Come Again, um, Kate literally has to go and live in the past in order to re-engage with the present. That's what it. That's what Come Again is about, basically. But, but um, mainly, it's uh, it's lots of jokes and fighting. It's, there are lots of jokes and fighting. It is it is wonderful. When you when you talk about um, when you when your mum died, there's there's an expression you use. I'm not going to quote it exactly because that would be crude of me. But the the, the essence is that you there's a moment when you realise that actually you now need to go and achieve for her. You need to almost become a superhero to, to live for two people. And that sounds to me like that, that was a massive driving factor in you getting the grades you needed, taking the challenges of actually going, right, I will resit this ruddy year because I, I want to do this. I'm not just doing it for Robert anymore. I'm also doing it for mum. There, there was that sort of, I was sort of painting this, sort of telling this story for myself. I think one of the advantages of this happening when I was 17 is that teenagers can be, and, uh, and in this case, definitely um, very romantic. And I was sort of, sort of romantically uh, uh, sort of seeing myself in this kind of heroic big screen kind of way. Uh, it's not just me, I'm doing this for, this one's for mum. Which is very, you know, these, I would find that, to my ear, that's terribly sentimental and uh, and and probably not a, in the long run probably wasn't a good idea that i saw myself in those terms because you're just writing for a fall but anyway i think it probably was not that i had any control over it over how i felt or how i thought about this stuff but 
at the time um uh, that probably did help probably did help me i mean by the time you the trouble is by the time you then you you get what you want i did get to cambridge and you've if you've used this kind of if you've got this kind of self heroic thing going on the trouble is you might miss out on empathizing with other people if you're if you're wrapped up in this kind of i this terrible thing happened to me oh poor old me and yet i've risen from the ashes blah 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 and i managed to you know working class background state school went first person to go to university it's cambridge oh my god i'm so mar- i can't get over how marvelous i am you you're likely to to be to be a bit of a dick um if i if i can use that word uh, on the radio it's, it's you know somebody's cat dies you're going to struggle to have much sympathy for them uh, i remember this happening somebody was in tears because they're of course you know this happens all the time people get to university and that's exactly the time when the family pet dies yes. or their parents get divorced yes. or you know stuff that to me at the, at that time seemed like small fight but of course you know pain is relative and if you if your mum hasn't died, if it's unthinkable that your mum would die, but you, but Charlie the cat has just uh, bought the farm, uh, then of course that's that's an incredibly upsetting thing. It's not like I was laughing at people whose cat had died, but I but I really struggled to to show any um, uh, any enough kindness, anywhere near enough kindness. So this this kind of you know it's me against the world thing. It's all very well, but I think it left me ill-equipped um, for. Um, for love, really, it, it left me um, badly prepared for for the world of human relationships. Right, I mean that changed, thankfully. You know, you, you, I mean, you're you're so yeah. self-aware, Robert. You know, just just listening to you talk now, you know, you, you're sort of. Do you analyse yourself a lot? Would you say? Uh, I, I I don't know really. I mean, I. Uh... I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I've had to think, I made myself think about that period of my life quite, quite carefully because I was writing a book about it. But I, uh, I, I don't, I don't constantly spend, you know, hours in, in introspection. I mean, I've been in therapy, I've been in and out of therapy um, uh, all of my life. I think there have been two or three periods where uh, that's been useful. So I suppose I've got the I've got the language and I've got you know the, the sort of the equipment to kind of think about things in 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 a reasonably analytical way, but um, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know why I'm resisting this. Actually, I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing to spend time thinking about your own feelings. But um, in fact, I think it's a, it's useful to be able to name them and to be aware of what's going on, uh, and to because so that you don't end up you know your feelings don't become someone else's problem. I think it's it's good to be able to take responsibility for if I'm feeling afraid of something or ashamed or whatever it is, if I'm not careful, that might come out as anger directed at other, you know, innocent bystanders. And uh, so it's, I think it's, it's a re- I think it's perfectly reasonable to try and keep an eye on your own, uh, to be your own emotional detective, to, to work out why am I feeling what I'm feeling at this moment? And, oh, it's because of that. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably quite a useful thing, but we don't, it doesn't do somehow uh, to talk about that, does it? I mean, for some reason, we even I can feel myself kind of going, "No, I don't spend hours talking about my thinking about myself because it yeah. it feels selfish and it feels self indulgent, I and mean, that's a terrible thing to to accuse someone of." Um, but there again, I, I think that a certain level, a certain you know level of that is is probably useful. The Andy J Podcast. 
So a really interesting chat from Robert Webb there, and I hope that brings you comfort. I'll just give you the Samaritans number one more, one more time if you need it, 116123, just in case. If you're in the UK, that's the place to call. Now let's talk to a man whose real name is Stephen, but he's professionally known as Professor Green, brilliant musician. He's done incredible things. Now he's going to talk to us about life as a new father, about how he wants his life to be following a really, I mean, had a really tough childhood and had some big challenges physically and mentally. And of course, he lost his own dad at a very difficult time as well. So Stephen's going to be talking about how he has combated the challenges he's come up against and things as simple as overthinking. And he's going to talk about the importance of his routines. I think this is a really important chat. So here is Professor Green. The Andy J Podcast. You know, the, the top lines, and it's it's horrific to describe them like that, but, you know, there's so much more, I believe, that we, we should be talking about in this in this time. So let's so let's go there, age 24. You know, j- just talk me through what happened, your perspective of it with your father. Yeah, I woke up on a Wednesday morning, the last time I'd seen him, I was 18. Um, and, uh, yeah, I woke up on a Wednesday morning to my nan. Uh, running into my room, I'd moved back. To, I'd moved back home briefly. Um, she just burst into my room. I barely even opened both my eyes, and she says, "Stephen, your dad's dead. He's hung himself." Don't get me wrong. There's no gentle way. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd have really appreciated her trying to, you know, I don't know, wake me up, say, "Hey, Stephen, let's go get a coffee," and then maybe go to Selfridges or up the West End for the day. Not that, that was ever something we did. Um, and then broke it to me. But um, it was a pretty, you know, I think your, you know, your first hour when you wake up and probably your last hour before you go to bed are the most vulnerable hours of the day, which is why I try and avoid uh, making any decisions or, or my phone for that matter and the TV during those times. So to be woken up with, with that news was, um, it was, it was heartbreaking, man. Um, and I went through a whole spectrum of emotions very, very quickly. I punched the wall, I screamed, I called him selfish, swore a lot, cried my eyes out. Um, and he had done it the night before. And I had no idea. I had no idea that he was going through that because we hadn't seen each other. We'd spoken just over a year before, um, around Christmas time. The last conversation I had with him was on the day after Boxing Day. I'd gone to buy something in the sales. Probably a computer game. I was in Walthamstow. I just bought Burger King. I was with my then girlfriend at the time, Tia. I remember it vividly. Um, and he called on my mobile and I said, so what's happening? We were meant to meet up the day after. Bearing in mind that I said I'd never put my neck on the line for him again. I'd never make myself vulnerable for him. I'd never give him the chance to hurt me again. But actually, I realized that it was hurting me a hell of a lot not having him in my life because he was such a kind, caring, and charming gentleman um he's just a rubbish father and he started he, he said you know uh he mentioned his you know, wife's name and her kids his stepchildren and how excited they were to see me and i was like you know it was, and it was the first time i ever stood up and and said how i felt i'd always been too scared prior to that as a child because i was scared he would disappear for a year and a half again and i'd end up sitting at our front room window you know in our living room looking at the bus stop directly outside waiting for him to get off the bus every day which he never did um, and I just said to him, this isn't about me having to play happy, but you know, this isn't about me playing happy families. This is about you and I sitting down and talking about everything and trying to develop some sort of a, or even seeing if we can develop a relationship as adults. Yes. 
And we started to stutter and, you know, and I just said, I probably kissed my teeth and said, you know what, if I ever see you again, I'm going to knock you out. Um, and that was the last conversation we ever had. Yeah. Yeah. And then a, and then a year later, like you say, he's, he's, he's hanged himself. Um, yeah. Man. And yeah. And then I, and then I ended up IDing his, his body. No one would walk in his family with, you know, I understand. Um, it wasn't easy. But, um, you know, it wasn't easy to have to do that and be the first person to walk in and see him like that, either having not seen him for so long. And then to see him lying there like that, um, it's a very harsh reality. But it is a reality, and I think it's important that people, you know, they understand what's on the other side of that because it's a hell of a lot of pain. But I don't think, and I haven't thought for a long time that he's, he was selfish for the decision he made. The amount of you have to understand, right? My dad was a very, very passive man. If he had a problem at all, he was a, he was weak, um, and there's a lot to contributed to that. I found out a lot of that by way of a documentary I made for the BBC in 2013, I think. Um, Suicide and me. So, yeah. So for him to make such a violent decision to end his own life when he wasn't a violent man was very, very difficult for me to to understand. And for ages, I wanted to understand how he made that decision. But uh, and I say this often, the only way I would ever understand that is if I found myself in the same situation that he was in, and I never want to be in that situation. I will never be in that situation. I can say that quite matter of fact. Um, so I had to let that one go. Yes. Yes. I mean, Stephen, obviously, this is a, a subject that has been discussed by you and, and you know, the, the public are aware of. You know, there was your autobiography. There was, the, as you know, the BBC Three show that you touched on. And I've, I've heard you talk about this in, in, in other interviews, and, and it must be incredibly difficult mining from it time and again. So, so I asked this. Uh, on on that, it is and it isn't. I think this is something that people people don't realise. You know, we, we we suppress things all too often, and if you push something down, it often just comes up and hits you from the side. Whereas, you know, I'm not. It will always be sad what my dad did. You know, especially now I have a son. You know, I would love for him to be able to to have had a grandfather. I would like to have had a father. Um, but the fact that I am very, you know, these things have been very present in my mind for a long, long time. And I've had many of these conversations and, and it still catches me off guard sometimes and, and, and makes me teary. Um, but for the most part, and it's not that I'm like, I've become some sociopath and completely disengaged with my emotions or feelings, but it's more present. So it's easier to discuss without, you know, because I don't hide from it. No, I completely understand that because of course, you know, the reality is that we all live in our current moments. We all live in what we're doing right here, right now. And I'm going to, I don't really know how to phrase this, Stephen, so bear with me. I'm not trying to be, um, you know, hearing you talk about this, that being stabbed in the neck and so on, you know, these are sort of outlying moments to the public in your life. But the way you talk about them now, it's a little bit like, and again, this is just an observation and it's not a judgment on any level, but it's a bit like, you know, we all go to dinner parties or whatever and we're meeting new people and so on. And it's only the people that are really close to us, you know, like my wife, for example, she's heard me tell a certain story exactly the same way a hundred times over, you know, oh, he, and she'll know in her head, oh yeah, he's going to do that one now. Whereas the people that are with me now, it's, it's, I'm, I'm telling it because they've never heard it and they're, they're interested in but how I'm connecting to that story, it's almost just I'm going through the history of this story now rather than the impact of the event, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? And so, and so yeah, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's 
Well, and I guess that goes back to what I was saying, right? Is that it's it's less the 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 the, the, the single moment that the, the the trauma happens. It's more the cumulative effect of things that happen over time because there were things I went through, you know, for a long time before that, and then there was things I went through for a long time after that, which actually, you know, you know the amalgamation of which were what caused the problem. Yes. Yes, and and and. Something starts the fire, but you know it's the bitch when it burns, it hurts. Yeah, yeah, and I'm and I'm assuming it's it's not something that you try to allow to occupy your every day, on a, on a frequent basis. It can't. I've got too many other things occupying my mind. You know, I can. I listen. I, it's a, it's a birthright of mine, right? I'm British. I complain a lot, um, <laughs> but I, I but I used to. I complain less now, and I, I guess that's because I've I've kind of accepted. I'm I'm not that happy unless I am overwhelmingly busy. It's I like to keep my mind occupied, and I think that's. You know, I used to. It, it can be a gift and a curse, an overactive mind, and and is it overactive or is it just well engaged? You know, but I, you know, I did suffer from OCD. I have overanalyzed every part of of my life probably sixteen times over. Um, I've got a lot better at not doing that and focusing on matters at hand and applying that sort of you know that energy into the things that I enjoy doing, the people that I enjoy spending time with. How do you quieten the mind now and the and the overthinking? Um, I do things that um, that. Relax me. I find I, I have to do, and it, I, you know, it's been a bit more difficult of, of late. It's like it has been for everyone over the last year. You know, everyone has suffered varying degrees of, of what's been going on. Um, but generally, you know, it would be, I, I, I find I need to do things that allow me to think, and I need to do things that allow me not to think about anything apart from the whatever's in front of me. So that might be a tire that I'm flipping, or, or you know, or um uh, a cycle that i'm on or you know it, it, on the flip side of that what allows me to think you know walking my dogs driving my car playing music um sitting in a room on my own um which i don't get that much of a chance to do uh, and something i haven't missed as much as as some people i think the last year has been the social obligations of which there used to be many um, which didn't allow me as much time. And I found that that was when things got difficult and started to feel unmanageable. And that was when I would probably make decisions which led to me doing things which made things easier in the interim, but longer in the, you know, long, sorry, harder in the long term. You know, and I, I realized I was like, why am I? So I was like, oh, God, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to have to have a drink. Um, and you can imagine how many events there are with, with you know, c- that come with all the various things I did that, you know, involved media, I suppose, yeah. um, and, and what I did as an artist. Um, and I was like, wait a minute, why am I going to places where I feel like I have to have a drink just to be? And it wasn't because I was socially anxious and I couldn't be anywhere without having a drink. It's just because I went to a lot of places where I didn't really want to be. Um, and that was because I felt obliged to. And then I realized that I wasn't and that the world wouldn't stop and that I'd still sell records and I could still engage with my fans if I didn't go to to all of these things that I was encouraged to do to, to, you know, to keep up appearances. Yeah, see and be seen. Which, which people are now desperate to do for a career. I'm, I, I'm, yeah, I find that mental. Yes, yes. It's but but then that's because you've done it. You know, you you you're allowed to find it mental because you know what the reality is. You know, whereas we sort of humble observers simply see the stage and and the sales and and the cars and all that stuff. You know, and, and it's it seems. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it, I just is. 
but then things are very different now and there's there's very different opportunities you know and I, I there was no such thing as an influencer when I was when I was growing up it was you know you had to have a craft that you were good at I never wanted to be famous I wanted to to, to become a successful musician um and then I fell into a few other things, presenting and, and documentaries and whatnot. And I was like, okay, well, I want to do that as good as I've done you, you know, as good as I've done everything else. Um, I find I do find the other side of it a bit weird, you know, just just wanting that. And, and we see what it does like psychologically to people, people that don't, you know. I think it's it's probably quite difficult for people when they 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 go from zero to a hundred. You know, one minute they're working in the bank, the next minute they they've got two million followers on Instagram. They get stopped everywhere they go. People are not necessarily as kind, um, and it has a huge impact on them. And we've seen people take their own lives because there's been no support in place for them. So I have a very uh, I have a very weird relationship with, with, with the state of affairs as they are currently. Yes, uh, I think fame and celebrity are very unusual words these days and they don't necessarily mean what they used to, what they were when we were growing up. And it's... Um, mm-hmm. it's well, that makes me sound old now, doesn't it? It's really showing my age. In my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm older, so, you know, easy. <laughs> not, yeah, but I'm not far off. The Andy J Podcast. Professor Green there. Incidentally, if you'd like to hear longer versions of any of these chats, I can tell you, Frankie Bridge, you can find a, a full hour with Frankie, episode number 73 of the Andy J podcast. Robert Webb was episode 48 and Professor Green, who you've just heard. And it's an amazing conversation. And lots of the longer chats, by the way, aren't just mental health focused. There's lots of other things about their lives and there's plenty of light and laughter. And Professor Green is episode 67, just in case that's of interest to you. Now let's talk to Jason Fox. Uh, now, this is one we had a deep dive into his life where now with Jason in episode 79 of the Andy J podcast but this is a really interesting chat from a military perspective and PTSD addiction and various other challenges Jason has faced an awful lot and come out fighting and this is a quick chat but again one that I think is worth being included in this selection so here is Jason Fox the Andy J podcast there's something that I'd like to talk to you about. So it's Rob Delaney, anyone that saw it on Channel 4, he was on last week. If not, mm. you've got to see this episode on all four. We'll, we'll talk we'll talk Maya in a moment. But Rob is the most fascinating character. If anyone doesn't know who he is, in the show you call him an actor. He's, he's a lot more than that. He's a stand-up comedian. He, he was in Hollywood yeah. movies, of course. But he's also yeah. a great writer, Catastrophe and so on, with Sharon Horgan. I mean, he's a very well-known guy. And... Yeah. He's also he's sort of also well known as being a big guy, you know. Physically, the guy is tall. He's a he's a unit, isn't he? He, he is a unit, and obviously in the show, I do intro him as an actor, and I try to. There's a little bit of bit bit, bit of fun taken there. Um, yeah. So I don't actually mean it, but the man is an, an absolute genius. I mean, he wrote with. Um, just said her name. Sharon Hogan. Yeah, he, he wrote with Sharon Catastrophe and starred in it. Yeah. He's written, an, he's written an amazing book, his biography, and he is probably one of the funniest, naturally funniest people I've ever met. And I was, I, if I'm honest, I was super excited about meeting him because I've obviously seen Catastrophe and I also um, really like his character in Deadpool 2. Yes, yes, which is absolutely brilliant when he skydives and everything. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. But but the fact of the matter is that there are two sort of big, 
big moments in Rob's life, two huge moments of, of challenge and sadness, which I don't know if yeah. you knew about. I don't want to sort of make assumptions, but but lots of the people that watch Catastrophe and so on don't realise this this darkness that he has in his life. And the no. first the first one, let's go through them both because I'd like to see how mm. they relate to you as well, Jason, because watching the show and seeing how the two of you reacted and interacted and, and your reactions to what he was telling you, I thought were fascinating. The, the first one is he talks mm. about his alcoholism, his car crash yeah. when he was younger. He'd been heavily drinking, had a bad relationship with booze and he had a yeah. massive car crash. And he explained to you that it was only when he came out of the car crash, the first thing he said is, did I, did I hurt anyone? And he was so relieved yeah. he didn't. He realized he had to stop. Now yeah. from reading and you and I chatting previously, I know that sort of depression and addiction are things that you yourself have had to face. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was they're different you know we were on we we're on different journeys but yeah. ultimately you can you can draw the parallels and when he was talking i was like yeah wow that's but to be fair he's what i will say about robbie he's a very he's very much a human he's really really in touch with being a human you know he the first thing he cares about is other people and how they you know even before i'm sure he was like that before he was drinking and that's why he became two and obviously was like right that is it you know i've done something where i could have injured and hurt someone maybe even killed them and so i'm gonna you know that was his turning point that was his moment where he was like right that's it i'm making a change but yes. yeah it was you know it's a it's a powerful story he's got some great stories about his you know aa meetings that he goes to and stuff like that as well yes. which he the, the thing i like about rob is no matter what he's talking about, he will always bring an element of light to it through not like deliberate comedy, but he will find the funny in something to lighten the mood of a subject, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yes, but I tell you what was really interesting watching it was when he was explaining it, because it's a, a story I'd heard before. You know, I follow him very closely. I, I think he's amazing. And like you, mm. he's someone I'd love to spend 48 hours with. I think he'd be incredible company. But what was interesting is sort of in the in the preamble, in the build up, you know, you'd had a laugh about him being an actor and you'd set him this great big challenge because the whole the whole show builds to this kind of horrible thing that you you two have to do together, <laughs> which, yeah. which I, you know, it's up to you whether you want to share it or not. But the, the point is, you kind of almost put it on the line in the voiceover and the narrative and whatever else that he's just an actor. You know, what's he going to what's he going to do? How is he going to be able to kind of dig deep and do this? I hope he can, but I don't know if he can kind of vibe. And then the minute he started telling you about this challenge that he's had and, and and his alcoholism and so on i felt like you were aware that he could tap into a resilience and it was mm. almost like your appreciation and respect for his skill set was yeah. just suddenly transformed like that you were just immediately like well hang on this the, is a guy i can connect with yeah so the way it worked was i knew I'd, i i knew who rob was obviously because of his what he's been in I didn't know an awful lot about him, so I basically tapped into a few things. I got his book, but I deliberately didn't read it before I met him because I wanted it to be me talking to him to be an actual journey. Yeah. And it was so difficult, you know, when you sort of meet just before you start filming, it was so difficult for me not to ask. I wanted to go ask him then, but I just had to say, so basically when we first met, I didn't even say anything really because I didn't want the conversation to go where it naturally would into the exploratory side of it and me ruin what was going to be real life, me finding out as we did, as you said, you know, he was telling me about, you know, his experiences with, you know, 
alcoholism and the, the turning point. I'm rambling a little bit, but when we when we were talking about what the show's about, it's about oh, Foxy, you know, helping these people find their resilience because he has to find it himself on certain occasions and blah blah blah. It was only after I started to talk to Rob that I was like, I don't know what I'm going to be able to offer Rob. Do you know what I mean? I said, you know, he's a He's a very intuitive person. He's very clever. He's very in tune with himself. And although he might be scared, he's going to be able to coach himself through these things. If anything, I was probably picking up stuff off him. Well, there was an amazing moment where the roles were reversed, which is just mm. before you had to jump, he used your words <laughs> back on you because you'd been explaining to him about how you can control the meter around you. You control your yeah. meter environment. He was, I'm sure he was mocking me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was like looking at him going shit I was like shut up you know <laughs> you, you, were, you were uncomfortable we don't see you uncomfortable often and you were uncomfortable and yeah he used oh, those no. words yeah. I, I do put myself into uncomfortable situations because I do like it uh, it just so happens on this this show you get to see me uncomfortable which I think is a good thing you know it's good that people know that we're all human it sure is yeah no you frame it perfectly it's a gripping watch I gotta say it's it's a sort of buddy movie with Jeopardy if you know what I mean yeah there, yeah there is yeah there's Jeopardy yeah, there's, for sure. there's plenty. There's, there's almost too much. It has me shredding. But, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. The other the other big revelation from Rob, which mm. you talk about, you don't go into huge detail in the show, I think for sensitive reasons, but he talks about the death of his son, Henry, which yeah. I've heard him discuss before. And, I mean, I, I cry every time I think about it. Uh, as a parent yeah. myself, and you're a parent, I mean, you know what, it, he, he, as he says to you, you know, you think about the mm. worst thing any parent could imagine is the death of a child, their child. Yeah. And he's had yeah. to experience that and he's had to live through it. And I could also see as he was telling you, and he's he's got to the point where it's almost a matter of fact explanation, which in itself is, mm. is heartbreaking. Yeah. And I could just see you there. And, and we don't see you fold often because you're physically huge. But I could see you just sort of crumbling with the sadness of it. It is. It's a de devastating story. I mean, not just his. There's obviously many like it. But to be in front of someone that is telling you... And he did go into a lot of detail. You know, the, the show did show a lot of um, restraint and respect for yes. a good reason. Yes, but, I thought so, yeah. I mean, it's brutal. Absolutely brutal. And then he talks about, you know, how he was after that you know, for a period of time, the, the sort of grieving period and how dark that must have been. You know, he was still doing stand-up, which is not not just during the, you know, the prolonged illness, but also afterwards. And he wrote another series of catastrophes. Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, all those things obviously play into how he puts pen to paper, probably. But it is, it is a tough, tough story to listen to and know that the person in front of you telling it is part of it i mean yeah the resilience that that man has got is unbelievable yes is, uh, is impressive yes i mean did you find that you learnt from him I, I know that you've dealt with all sorts of horrors in your life but as you say that that raw experience of somebody sharing something so shattering it, it can only yeah. affect you yeah i think you know we probably all have our different interpretations on what grit and determination through hardship is. And it's always good to listen to someone else's take on it. You just learn another, another. You, you're given another tool, hopefully. If you can interpret what they're saying, there's another tool there for you to use if you wish. The Andy J Podcast.
Good to hear from Foxy there. And as I say, you can hear a very lighthearted and entertaining hour with him, episode 79 of the Andy J podcast. Now let's talk to Terry White. Now Terry's story is really challenging. Um, following the physical and mental abuse she faced as a child. Oh, it's, she wrote a book about it, Coming Undone, and it was a remarkable read. I read it in one hit and it broke my heart. And then I chatted to her um, for a full hour. It's episode 38 if you're interested in hearing the whole episode. But Terry has taken back control and her messages are so important. So here is the remarkable Terry White. The Andy J Podcast. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that, that isn't in the book, and I was fascinated by the whole time, is, is, and I know this sounds like a very weird thing to kind of tangent off on, but what was happening with your professional life while this is going on? What did, what did work know? Because you went to New York for a huge job. You had a massive yeah. position of power. And, of course, you, you know, you checked yourself into A&E and, and uh, presumably thinking, you know, you might get your stomach pumped and then you'd be back at work the next day. But, of course, that, that didn't happen. So yeah. how did work respond? What, what were they told? Well, I didn't tell them because of this, and this is an important point, actually, as you were saying earlier about the two Terrys, I've always been very good at keeping the private me who had these mental health issues and was drinking too much and and very dysfunctional I kept that that person very far away from my work persona so at work I was a very high achiever alpha female very driven very ambitious very um you know could be depended on I never I had no chaos in my work life at all and so those two people were kept as far away as possible and then what happened when I was hospitalized is they clashed and collided together I never wanted work to know I'd got mental health issues because I thought that they would look differently at me that they wouldn't trust me that I would have less responsibility Um, and I'd worked really hard my entire life to make sure nobody in my employee employers ever knew so but I had to tell them something because obviously I wasn't going to be there so and I'd never taken time off so I called my deputy editor who was my number two essentially who was a, a friend of mine out of work and I just told her and said can you lie to them and say I'm, I'm in hospital having an operation or something gynecological I can't even say that word gynecological well Gyne- you know what I'm yes, saying I know, yeah, yeah. I, I was about to attempt it as then, and then mess <laughs> yeah. it up myself I mean that's the way to stop people asking questions yeah. yes and then yeah. I knew that and I knew that would be and that, but then I later found out because I had my um my insurance was through my job. It was part of my contract. Obviously, all healthcare in America is done on insurance. So when I'd been given the insurance, I'd had to give approval for me to be admitted to the psychiatric ward. They'd been in touch with my employers and told them. So they knew the entire time, and I had no idea because I worked very hard to keep it keep it from them. Um, and But then, you know, when I was released, I was back at work the next morning, and like nothing had happened and everything just went back to normal i was just desperate for to brush it all under the carpet and pretend it had never happened and do you feel that that was supportive of them or or the opposite i think they were in a very tight spot because i hadn't told them they'd been told it confidentially by my um, insurance company and i think it was it was very hard for them to know what to do and i think i was very good at hiding things i was very good at um you know i had a routine every morning to make sure they couldn't tell that i'd been drinking so much so i'd put i'd eye drops which i do use a certain number of times a day to get rid of the red streaks in my eyes 
um, I, I just had this whole routine down so that nobody could know. So I think they were in a really difficult position. And, you know, the thing was, work was going incredibly well. We were doing, we had all these targets that we were hitting. I was winning awards. The magazine was winning awards. So on the professional side, even when I was absolutely falling apart at the seams personally, my career had never been going better. Yes. Yes, it's uh, it's incredible, isn't it? I, I guess they did what they felt you needed to keep yeah. to keep you delivering for them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, if if Terry doesn't want to talk about it, we won't talk about it. That sort of thing. yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. very interesting. Um, so Terry, obviously, we we talk about how you you kind of kept this. These were your private problems, as as you call mm. them. You know, you kept them to yourself for such a long time. Why why did you decide to then? go public as it were and, and, and share I mean I think as I kind of talked about earlier shame and stigma are a massive thing and they're words that are banded around by people but they are so powerful and I remember the only time I'd ever talk about it over the years is I would get drunk with you know a girlfriend or somebody I, I just met or a new pal and we'd get really drunk and you know you have those nights when you share all your secrets um, and I would, you know, I there were a couple of people over the years that I told that I'd been abused. And then the next morning, woken up with such shame and paranoia that they were going to tell people, that people in the industry were going to find out. And so these, these secrets became, bigger secrets became kind of shrouded in even more shame and stigma. And the first time I ever wrote about the domestic violence we suffered was when there were big cuts to refuge services. And I wrote a piece out of pure fury that, you know, this life-changing, life-saving service was being cut back when women and children were already being turned away from refuge doors. And I firmly believe that if we hadn't have been given space in that refuge, that man would have tried to kill my mum again and probably us. So I wrote that piece out of fury and, and the, the sexual abuse I didn't intend really ever to talk about. And then when I got out of the hospital, um, I wasn't drinking. I was kind of, you know, spending a lot more time in my apartment. And uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you write little 50-word stories just to keep you kind of, you know, your brain going, give you something to do, to distract you. And I started writing these little stories and all of them kept coming back to the abuse. And I kept writing about it and writing about it. And, you know, the, it, the writing became longer stories and became what was clear was going to be a book. And I just thought I have to, I just felt an overwhelming urge to just say the truth once and let people know that it is. it does feel shameful. It does feel like there's stuff you should keep a secret, but that you can overcome it, you can learn to live with it, you can have the things you've been told you will never get to have. Men will tell you, men will have told girls out there that they're lost, that there's nothing that can be done for them, that they're never going to be anything, that there's no use for them in society. And I know because I used to feel like that I was told that, and I just became compelled to speak to those women and girls and it kind of told itself after that. I, I wrote in, you know, big stints. I would sit at my desk all night and just write and write and write. Um, and, you know, it, when it came out, I just felt different. I felt I felt changed in a way. And I did feel unburdened and, and lighter. 
Um, but I did think eventually this could be helpful and it could be useful. And I think that that is, is reason and justification enough for me that I felt able to, to publish the book. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Terry, obviously in in our lives we have many purposes and one of them of course for you is mother you know let's mm. i don't want to take anything away from from your reality you know the, the you that wakes up mm. in the morning with your baby boy and your partner and so on and so forth and the job mm. you do etc but but the power of your words the 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 impact that your book has had already the way it's been received the difference it can and will do do you feel like this story is one of your superpowers one of your purposes yeah, I think, you know, I, I've come to accept it in so much as I would not be the person I am now without what happened. And I think I always saw it as a negative, this awful thing that had happened to me that if I could just go back and change, I would. But now I kind of think it, there's very few women in the media, for example, in at my level of seniority who have the kind of background I have. Yeah who have been who've had experiences of domestic violence and, and sexual abuse and and have come from a working class background so i think there's i feel a sense of responsibility to say that you know to talk directly to those girls who were where i was and and i think that i can't change what's happened but it can be used to do some good and to create a sense of you know hope and even community I heard from so many girls and I have to say from from lots of young men as well when the book came out who were telling me their stories and their experiences and and how they felt they had a bit of hope and and the kind of comfort the book gave them even in in the, its most kind of graphic or difficult chapters the fact that it did give them hope and that was incredibly um comforting for me in return to know that the book had had kind of have done that for them so it feels now not like something that i'm ashamed of and, and want to squash into a dark corner away from everyone else i kind of want to tell more and more people and 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 make sure that people understand that their lives aren't predetermined, that they can still achieve anything they want to achieve. And all these things, which I think sometimes can, can sound like cliches from people, but I, I truly, truly believe it. And I think when you look at the number of people in poverty in this country, when you look at the uh, rising domestic violence stats in in the pandemic and you know abuse stats for example will never truly be known because it's chronically underreported because it's 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 in families and it's secrecy i think that it's still happening so much and i i those are the people i want to speak to directly um and i hope the book um reaches them and, and makes them feel as i say hope for the future yes yes absolutely i mean terry you we, we sort of touched on how long it took for you to be able to share your truth, to, to share your private mm. problems. And now that you've put everything out there, now that the world knows your mm. story and more and more people are learning it and hearing about it, strange question for you, but bear with me. Do you feel, mm. do you feel safer now that your truth is out there? Safer in what way? Well, because in a way you spent such a long time hiding your truth. Mm. Do you see what mm. I mean? You were, you were escaping yeah. into professional Terry and then private Terry who, who really can't tell anyone. Yeah. You know, but now it's out there. You've nothing to hide. There's nothing to fear. Yeah. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Do you, yes. see, do you see what I mean? Yes, yes. And that's really important because part of my, you know, when you come from a working class background, 
the sense of, you know, the imposter syndrome people speak of, the fear that your success and your achievements are going to get taken away from you. I definitely always had that. I was always scared of being fired and I was always scared of my career being taken away from me because somebody discovers that I'm mentally ill. And I come from a background um, that's incredibly abusive. And therefore, you know, maybe my mind's not right and I can't be trusted with a big magazine. I can't be trusted to lead a team of people. And actually, yeah, now that everybody knows, you know, you, you're always scared that your worst secret is going to be revealed. And, and my worst secret was, was that I had severe mental illness and why I had that severe mental illness. And, and actually, with it being out there, you know, and I've still got my job and I've everything is still exactly the same as it was before. And you imagine there being some cataclysmic consequence of people finding out. And it just isn't like that. And now, you know, everybody knows who I really am and that desperation I had before for there to be several Terry's, as you as you referred to it, you know, the work Terry, the personal life Terry, the Terry that I showed to my friends, the Terry that my family knew, all of those people with different people and the sense that you have to perform is quite exhausting and also that leads to a massive fracturing of, of your sense of self who actually am I and now that all those people can coexist together that the, you know you've you've revealed who you really are and that and so therefore that is who you have to be all the time yes. so yes absolutely that, that there's more certainty in the world for me now that um, everything is out there and that's why I use the word safe because yeah I, because it's I'm, a good word I'm sort of appealing to anyone out there that isn't living a truth you know that is yeah that is keeping secrets because they think they have to or hiding things away because they think they need to but actually if you wear your story then yeah then you'll realize that it's okay it's the right thing to do yeah and it's never your worst you'll have a worst fear in your head and that worst fear will not come true and that part of it's because there's been so much change over the last few years, especially around mental health. Um, and I'm sure some people privately, I'm sure there are uh, more traditional people I work with who privately think, oh, God, is she all right? Do you know what I mean? But but the things that you fear, the being fired, the being humiliated, all of that, that doesn't happen. Um, and I think what people do actually do is respect you and respect you for, for being open about who you are and, yes, and um, the, what, the way you phrased it is perfect, actually, of feeling safer, because that's exactly it. Great. Well, good. I mean, it's, I just, I'm just sort of thinking to it, if there's a vulnerable listener out there that's mm. wondering and that's being empowered by what you're saying, and by the way, they really must, they really must read the book, um, then, you know, the, the knowledge that actually safety lies in truth is, is, quite, is yeah. quite important. Um, yeah. Terry, I've got a few sub-questions that I've been mm. wondering since us chatting and since reading and, and, and so on. You know, what's your relationship like now with alcohol? Do you drink at all? Do you, do you are you a social drinker? Do you not go anywhere near it? I do drink, and I did. I talk in the book about um, uh, I went to AA, yeah. which I found very, very difficult. Um, and here's my take. And you know, everybody has their own personal opinion on this, which is I don't think I was an alcoholic. I think I abused alcohol because of my m m undiagnosed mental health issues. I also abused pills. I mean, anything really that could shift my mood because I struggled so much with it. Um, I did obviously have to stop drinking to blackout. I was drinking to blackout and, and falling over and knocking myself out, getting in all sorts of trouble. But um, the, the real issue, and I say this in the book, is I wanted to, to die for so long. 
So my pull towards suicide was so strong that I think I was consciously trying to drink myself to death. Um, and so what had to change was I had to tackle my mental health issues and I had to no longer want to die because if it wasn't booze, it would be pills, it would be knives. Like the, the, the thread through all of this was I didn't want to be alive. And that was a very difficult thing to kind of have the realisation of and have to work with. But I don't, I don't drink to excess anymore. I can't tell you the last time I was drunk or tipsy. Um, I have a nice glass of wine with my dinner. But I'm also aware that if, if my mental health crisis appears again, that that may be somewhere it manifests itself or I may, you know, start trying to take pills again or I may do something else. So for me, they've always been symptoms of my mental health issues and that's the thing that really needed the attention because if I stopped drinking entirely and didn't do anything about my mental health, what I would do is I'd have gone and, and abused something else because, right. it, as I say, it was just a symptom. And I did find, I'm quite honest about finding AA um very tricky the yes. rules the kind the of handing yourself over yeah. Yeah. yeah i found it i found it a difficult system it definitely wasn't for me i know it's how i know people who say it saved their lives and i think if 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 that's what it does for you absolutely you know crack on with it but i think it's it's different for each person and and you'll know if you are an alcoholic or if you're somebody who abuses any number of things because of deeper much deeper psychological problems and i'd encourage you to hear the full episode with terry white episode 38 and indeed seek out her book it is incredible Uh, i believe it's going to be made into a tv show as well which is um something uh, something brilliant isn't it so let's uh, let's carry on shall we And let's talk to another musician, very successful musician, a man called James Arthur, who's had so many hits and is great company. He spoke to him uh, just a few weeks ago now. He's episode 85 of the Andy J podcast. If you'd like to hear the full chat and plenty of it is lighthearted and fun. And we even have a joke about a character we create called Savlon Fonse. However, um, this, of course, is the mental health episode. So it's important to hear his story and he's going to talk us through his demons that he's faced throughout his life and career and how they manifested and indeed how he has been able to deal with them cbt therapy and the realization about how he can have thought process in his life to get through things so here is james arthur i mean james we we sort of said at the very start of this that you'd been having therapy for unresolved childhood trauma how much of what you've just shared, you know, where you talked about school and, and, you know, feeling unwanted at home and so on, how much of that was an ever-present before you started the therapy? How much were you aware of that in your sort of day-to-day life as a man in your late 20s, early 30s? How much were you kind of thinking, this is, this is what's holding me back, this is what's causing me to self-destruct and so on, because I want to talk about panic attacks and, and you know, nearly throwing mm-hmm. things away, etc. when you had massive success. We'll come on to that. But how much of that yeah. was were you aware of before you started talking about it and how much has kind of been unlocked since you've started mm. having these conversations. I don't know. I'm, I'm calling them conversations. I don't know what it is. I don't know when you have what, what this therapy means, but, but please share. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. So I, um, I, I think I was aware of it to a certain extent because of the way that relationships or friendships tend to go for me. I think my trust issues were maybe or the standards that I had um, when it comes to trust were were like maybe a little bit higher than anyone else around me or in in my life like if like for example if one of my mates 
like chatted up one of my sisters, I'd have a really irrational <laughs> reaction to it, stuff like that. Or like relationships never really went beyond two years for me because I think it, um, maybe I, I, I was intent, too intense at times. Or because you know, I suppose when when you when you're young and you feel like nobody is standing up for you. Uh, like you and even your parents, you know. It, I suppose again, as an irrational thing for me, oh, my parents don't even want me. Even, even when there was, you know, there was lots of ways to um, to rationalise that whole thing. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of went to like, you know, nobody likes me, like or paranoia, or like everyone thinks I'm a, this or that. And um, and the, yeah, I guess the cognitive ther- th- behavioural therapy helped me um, see. It taught me a ra- it taught me rational thinking. I, I wasn't exercising rational thinking. I did, but I didn't realize to what extent, um, and I didn't realize how how quickly uh, I would uh, my, my sort of predisposition was set to not trusting anyone. I guess yes, um, and, uh, and 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 immediately jump into they don't like me or they think I'm this or they think I'm that, um, and that was that you know that was. Um, breeding anxiety and um and just putting me uh, just at, at a disadvantage on a daily basis i, I suppose almost the perfect um, storm of being deeply confused and not really knowing who you are and, and where you are in the world by the sound of things yeah exactly that exactly that and so it it, it kind of a lot of things made sense like since i moved to london which is obviously a sacrifice i had to make you know, Make it sound London's not a great place to be, but it's definitely not home for me. It's not where my friends and family are. Um, but uh, I've I've moved every, every kind of this again this two year cycle. I was moving every couple of years to a different part of London just to because I didn't feel like I sort of was belonging anywhere. And then it became clear it's not really about where I am. It's about who I'm with um, or, or who I'm around, if you like. So. Um, yeah, I think just just the, that constant feeling of not being settled um, was again stemmed back to um, to childhood, I guess. Yes, I mean James, you've you've not said this as far as I can tell, and and I'm I'm going to ask a very personal question that you might you might just choose to ignore, which is absolutely fine. But in yeah. these in these dark times, you know, you talked about your anxiety, the feeling unwanted, and and and, and the sort of various different challenges around that. Did you ever feel yeah. suicidal? Did you ever feel like, well, nobody likes me. I, I'm not succeeding at anything. I keep getting chucked out of stuff. I might as well just end it. There's no point. Yeah, no, I have. I've uh, sadly, I've hit that wall a couple of times um, within the last um, like ten years or so. Um, there's there's a point around 2015, 2014, where I'd lost my record deal, and um, seemingly I was kind of done uh, professionally. Um, and uh yeah definitely spiraled at that point and then there was a point actually um at the beginning of 2020 uh where i just didn't i i was i would say i was numb i didn't care whether i lived or died and i, I was sort of like i was sort of more like i, I actually kind of wish i was i wasn't here i felt like that I, like i just had in my i was in a really bad headspace that the industry didn't care about me um uh, they don't. They don't want me to win, no matter how good my music is or whatever. It doesn't matter. Like I'm, I'm just that guy that they don't want to succeed. And just uh, you know, it's really, really negative thought, um, thought processes and stuff. So, yeah, I was. Um, I would say I was at that point. But I put it all in the in the album, and you know, just to 
just to sort of make something positive of this, yeah, I kind of made made a, a project out of that whole thing. I made made a body of work, which is great, and I've got to the other side of it. But yeah, sadly, I have I have been suicidal, um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it, just because I think it's important to raise awareness, and that a lot of, a lot of young men feel that way. Definitely. Yes, yes. Well, what what I find most remarkable about about that, James, and I'm sorry to be sort of all you know psychotherapist mm. on you. I have no counselling no, skills no. whatsoever. I'm I'm just a guy that asks questions and often dumb ones. Yeah, yeah. But you no, know what cool. I find most interesting, you say that you you know that the, the, the darkest times, the suicidal times, were 2014 and 2020. And this is after, and and to our listeners and to me as well, that's taken me by surprise because of course this is after you'd had vast success. This is after you became a household name. This is after, and again, making assumptions, presumably financially you weren't struggling. You know, you, yeah, you might have lost your record deal, but nonetheless, yeah. you know, yeah. we all know, and I'm putting this in the most glib of terms, there are certain songs in your back catalogue that if you didn't have a record deal, you could make a decent living of just, you know, singing for the rest of your life. Do you know what I mean? As in that's, you, yeah. you could have yeah. survived that way. You didn't need new material. You didn't need a record deal. Mm. You, you would have got by because you've got a great voice. You've got a strong back catalogue, just, you know, doing a few tours, singing for rich people, etc. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So to hear yeah. that you were, you were at your darkest... Mm. When you were in a position of prominence, financial, comfortable security, and so on, that's yeah. that. Despite what you've said about your childhood challenges, I think that's that's really surprising, but also very revealing about the industry and about how people talk about success and people just assume rich people, famous people, they must be happy, and that's yeah. so yeah. rarely the case. It is, I suppose, it is so rarely the case, and um, and I would say that. Uh, you know, it's it's hard not to sound narcissistic when you when you when you talk about these things, but like you know, I, I guess that's because uh, you're sort of in this cycle of trying to get validation from people. I suppose you're just like, you know, you're making you're making an album, and then you go out and you promote it for a year, and it's all about like buy my album, please, and buy my music, and it's like it's it's hard to get out of that cycle, and um, I don't know, um, yeah. For me, I've I since from a young age. It's always been the thing that um, you know me me getting validation for the music that I make has always been that sort of the most important thing to me. Um, and uh, and I suppose when when I felt like that was I was being blocked or whatever, and it wasn't I was you know I looked at the landscape of the music industry, especially in the last few years, and I thought like wow, like I'm never gonna really reach the goal, even though like you said, I, I could be very happy with what I've achieved and the legacy that I. I like, you know, if I could, if I if I was to to die now, <laughs> touch wood, I don't. But uh, yeah, I'd li- I'd yeah, I'd leave a pretty decent legacy. I've I've, I've done all right, but it's I, d- I definitely haven't achieved what I set out to. Um, you know, because um, I set myself pretty high standards, and um, yeah, and 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 it's yeah, I suppose I suppose there was a realization back then in 2020 uh, or in 20 or, or even like this year, I guess, where where I've sort of made a lot of peace with a few things. Um, it was, I, I guess I realized when, when everything stood, when the world stood still and I wasn't able to kind of fight for this, this goal, um, I looked around my life and I was like, oh, where, you know, there's some fundamentals missing here. Where are the pillars that I can hold on to, um, when things aren't going so well and what, you know, when I'm not getting that success that, that I want. And, um, and that was a kind of sobering place to be, I suppose, if that makes sense. 
Right, we're coming towards the end of this mental health special. I hope you were finding this useful. I hope you're bringing comfort and I hope you're learning from these people's experiences. I don't know if you're going to listen to this in one hit or whether you'll be coming back to this in sporadic moments. You might find these bite-sized and useful. I sincerely hope it's bringing you comfort. I'll just tell you once more, if you need to reach out for help, then do seek out the Samaritans if you are UK-based. Their number is 116-123, and they're open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There will always be someone there to talk to. Samaritans.org, if you'd rather find them online. So we close out today's show with Matt Haig, a remarkable author who has written so many brilliant, brilliant books, and one of them is currently a movie. He's just an incredible guy. This is episode 84 of the Andy J podcast. I'd love you to hear the whole show. I'd love you to hear all of the episodes in full if you haven't. Um, But this is where we talk about Matt's lifelong battle with depression. He really has had some seriously tough times in his life, but he has shared and been incredibly open, and he hasn't just put it in his stories. He's been open by being very clear in his writing about his challenges and indeed on social media. So I think it's really important to hear from Matt because he's a remarkable guy with an incredible attitude to life. So for our final guest today, this is Matt Haig. The Andy J Podcast. I mean, Matt, you know, you've, you've talked about this, you've written extensively about it, you have sort of called upon the memories many many times so so i won't dwell on it as i say the only question i have is that there's a very known moment for you you were in ibiza you were age 24 you'd been experiencing these these physical issues that that you 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 later kind of realized were depression and so on and this did lead you to um becoming very close to committing suicide uh, mm. thankfully you didn't and you've you've written very eloquently about the idea of what if it didn't happen you know you could have end up, ended up paralyzed and then of course you remembered the uh you know the love that you have from various people around you family and and your now wife and so on can I, my my question is yeah. mac as as you've asserted you know this was over 20 years ago you know to most of us that, that are you and I are very similar in age to most of us thinking back 20 years it, it's just a sort of blurry hazy something of a yeah. memory how vivid yeah. is that time for you? It is very vivid. But the problem is with any memory where you talk about it a lot, you're often remembering the remembering. So, yeah. so it, 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 I've written about it so much. I've talked about it so much. I, I never know if I'm actually remembering it exactly as it was or if I'm remembering remembering it. So yeah. it's, a bit, it's a bit complicated. But but to be honest, all and it's not just that time, by the way. Every time I've had a sort of bout of, serious depression like i i do tend to remember my memory is not great but i do tend to remember those periods of my life quite um in a pronounced way i think it's because my experience of anxiety and depression it, it kind of sharpens everything it makes everything intense every day seems like a, a year when when you're living through it and um yeah it i suppose it's like any bad experience, like a, a, any kind of grief or anything you go through in life, that, that is a particularly bad day or week or month, it tends to um, stay with you. So so often when you're writing about it and talking about it, it's not necessarily a case that you're reliving it or it's it returning to it. Because in a way, it's always been part of your DNA and it's always... Uh, been there so if anything it's more like that therapy thing of letting it go and um 
yeah, uh, sort of releasing it like a sort of metaphorical kidney stone or something. You're sort of taking it out of yourself. You know, and I always remember those particularly difficult patches quite well. And as I say, my memory's not not great. Um, does that help, Matt? Does, that, does that does that make things better for you in that sense? Because those chapters are so vivid, does that make things better, almost like a roller coaster, so that when things aren't troubling or dark, you appreciate them more? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean. It also, it also comes with a slight um, bit of fear because you're always worried that you're going to sort of have another dip or feel terrible again. But yes, on balance, I think that's true. I think um, I think having been through you know terrible times, we all go through terrible times, but for me, that experience of rising out of them leads to a better appreciation and gratitude. Um, yeah, no, I had a dip. I had a dip this year, and. Um, just waking up uh, with this sort of anxiety, familiar, very familiar anxiety feeling that doesn't really go away. You feel like you're on the sort of downward drop of a roller coaster, um, but without the fun aspect of the roller coaster, knowing it's just a temporary thing and knowing why you're feeling it. And I, I felt like that. And it wasn't really for anything other than I was swamped, overloaded, felt a bit too exposed. I'd been overdoing social media. I'd been overdoing work. Um, you know, uh, had relatives who were poorly with non-COVID related things and just everything was getting a bit too much. Worried about my daughter. My daughter was going through her own little health issue and yeah, it was, a, it was just a, a stressful time. But then when you start to feel a bit better, it, it's almost like it was better than before. It's better than the four-year-old because you, you, you actually have that new sense of appreciation for normal things. And, and um, yeah, so I, I don't think it's ever actually worth the going through the anxiety to feel that, but it wouldn't be good if we, we could just have that. And I'm sure some people do, but have that sense of gratitude and mm. normal, normal things and, you know, a, a nice blue sky and all of that stuff um, without having to go through um, the tough, tough time. Yes, it would. How, how have things changed with being a parent, Matt? Because you sort of talked about, you know, your daughter has had some challenges, but if you're in the middle of a spiral yourself, yeah. ha have you had to sort of, I, I don't understand how this works, so apologies for, again for the dumb questions, mm. but have, have you had to sort of try and rise above yourself so that you can be yeah. there as a parent? Or, or have you just yeah, had to yeah, go, yeah. do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I mean, the thing is, even before I was a parent, what I used to be very good at, was masking what I was feeling. Almost too good at it. You know what I mean? That was part of my problem. My problem mm. used to be that I'd, I'd lock things away. Um, you know, I could t turn up at work or function. You know, functioning as someone with depression or anxiety. Often, you know, possibly not functioning quite as well as I thought I was, but, you know, I was, I was very good at home. And so I've had years of practice that when I'm in a, a, a bad, bad patch, um, you know, I'm probably not as on top form or, you know, comedy dad as I try and be when I'm in a good patch, but I, I really, really try and um, protect kids from it. Having said that, I do talk openly with them. I mean, they know what I've written about. They've never written a book called Reasons to Stay Alive. They've been to a few of my events before. Um, and, 
you know, hopefully the lesson I'm giving to them is whatever you go through, you will get through, uh, you know, in life. So it's not, it's not a, I hope it's not a lesson that, oh, having me as a dad means you're definitely going to, you know, get mentally ill or this is going to happen or whatever. I hope the example I'm giving is that whatever life throws at you, um, you have it in you to survive it and to survive and um, to come out on the other side. And I hope that's um, the lesson. I mean, I suppose in other ways, in less obvious ways, it has an impact because when I'm sort of uh, going through a bad patch, like a lot of people, I do a lot of displacement activities. So I'll then be on my phone all the time or throw myself into work. So in that sense, I'll have less time less family time, less time with the kids. So that, if I regret anything, it's that, that I've missed too much of them because I've, I've been trying to sort sort my head out or focus on other things. And um, so that's what I have to watch with myself, I suppose. I don't think there's a parent out there, Matt, that doesn't have <laughs> probably continual guilt that one or all their children aren't getting enough of their attention all the time. I, I, I've got three boys and I'm constantly worried, have I given the middle one enough time or is the old one needing more of me or the younger one or so on? You know, you, th- th- I think that yeah. never stops. Probably when they're even old and you're a grandparent, I, I doubt that ever goes away. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's a, a curse of a modern age, isn't it? We have so much distraction. We have so much to watch on TV. We have so much to watch on YouTube. We have so much many emails to get back to. We have, you know, and it, it doesn't stop on a Saturday and Sunday. It's like a continual thing. So the work-life balance, people who are a little bit bad at that, which I, I have been bad at setting those boundaries before, then, yeah, I mean, that's, that guilt's going to be a, a part of it. But, you know, that said, we do homeschool our kids. So I, I do, I do spend, you know, I'm normally in the house with the kids. It's just being able to put um, devices down and actually spend, you know, and, and that's another thing which I have written about before. But I, I, I've been very honest that social media has in the past had a negative impact on my brain and life like it has on a lot of people. I've got too, you know, wrapped up in what people's opinion is of me and all of this stuff, which <laughs> I think anyone even in a minute way out in the public eye, it's hard to avoid that. Uh, and the only way really to avoid it is to just put your phone down and get back into life again and not, not be reading what people are saying about you or tweeting at you or, you know, and not judging yourself on other people's opinion. And that, that doesn't just go the negative way. That goes the positive way. Because I, I actually think, you know, when people are gushing over you on Instagram or something or, you know, that's almost as bad because mm-hmm. it's still you're still investing you're still sort of giving up your own sense of self-worth and, and handing it over to other people so then you you have that classic thing i read an interview with um you know comedian tim minchin um recently and he was talking about um when you're in the public eye and you get too caught up in like being on tour or whatever and and and, and you go from big ego to little ego in in, in like a Fraction of sense, you're sort of constantly penduluming between thinking, "Oh, I'm great, everyone loves me," and "Oh, I'm this terrible person, no one likes me," and you know, and, and that is just you, you have. To, and I feel like we're all encouraged, you know, invest in what other people are thinking about us online, um, and 
people who are naturally a little bit insecure, uh, and I'm definitely one of those people who, who was like that, certainly when I was younger, it, you have to almost train yourself and remind yourself that <laughs> your, your self-worth, you know, you're not, you're not this amazing, brilliant, perfect, flawless person that some people think you are, and you're not this absolutely terrible, evil, you know, horrible person that other people think you are. You have to just sort of like take everything with a pinch of salt and not invest um, too much too much in that. And there's definitely been times um, in my life where I've invested too much in that. And I'm really making a concerted effort not to be posting all the time, not to be tweeting all the time, not to be worried who's ignoring me, who's not, who's gone off me and all that. Yes. The Andy J Podcast. So there we go. Thank you for your company today. I hope you have enjoyed. I know that's a strange word to use because these are challenging conversations, but they are fascinating and they are, I hope, stories which will bring you some comfort and assist you if you're going through some challenges. My thanks to my guests today for their honesty and their openness throughout this incredible series of conversations. Frankie Bridge, Robert Webb, Professor Green, Jason Fox, Terry White, James Arthur and Matt Haig. You can hear much longer versions with all of them if you go into the back catalogue of the Andy J podcast with so many episodes now. I mean, this is episode 90 after all. Next week, we are going to be switching it up and bringing you a lot more lighthearted, just a bit of festive fun, uh, bringing you some of our favourite anecdotes from some of our biggest names. But for now, I wish you happiness and joy. And if you need to talk, please do reach out and speak. Much love. We'll see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.